0: Your Bibles, if you will, Matthew chapter 27. We're going to look this morning at verses 15 seven, <laughs> through the end of the chapter, verse 66. You know, after their crucifixion comes the resurrection, which we actually won't look at till next week, but certainly the resurrection is the cornerstone of our faith. Um, author Ian Bound said that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was necessary to establish the truth of his mission and to put the stamp of all-conquering power on his gospel. The Apostle Paul wrote that if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. So it's not a stretch to say that the resurrection is the most significant event in all of human history it is what it's the strongest evidence that we have that Jesus is the son of god and it's the event that gives us as men and women it gives us the sure hope of eternal life it gives us that hope that not only gives us joy as we look to the future but it gives us powerful hope even now as we live out our lives here now throughout the centuries understandably there have been skeptics and there have been scholars who've attempted to deny the account of the resurrection. We now have schools that are filled with history books that oftentimes give alternative explanations of the resurrection. In some cases they fail to even mention it as a historical event. And knowing though that this would be the case, God has been so very faithful. He's been faithful to provide us Not only with an accurate record of the resurrection based on eyewitness testimony, but also we're going to see this morning to include some amazing elements that are going to help to strengthen our faith. That are going to help to make the truth of the resurrection as secure as possible. And we're going to consider some of those together in our text. A little short section of scripture, but I think it will be a blessing to us this morning. So let's pray. Just ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, we do thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to be here, Lord, week after week, together as a church family, looking into these things, Lord, having you teach us. Father, we pray uh, that your spirit would be here with us this morning. That you would give us ears to hear what he would say to us as a church, both individually and collectively. Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, when we last left off, the crucifixion was complete, Jesus had just yielded up his spirit, our redemption had been accomplished, and we remember that his death was so unique, and it was so extraordinary, it was so supernatural, that even some of those hardened soldiers that were assigned there to watch over his death on the cross. In verse 54, it said that they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. So we jump back in this morning, we'll pick it up in verse 57, where we read that when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. And this man went to Pilate and asked For the body of Jesus. Now Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. He was a member, Luke tells us, of the Jewish Sanhedrin. Remember, that's that 70-man ruling council. John tells us that Nicodemus, remember Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night in John chapter 3. John tells us that Nicodemus was also with Joseph. And that they went together to Pilate with this special request. Now we have to imagine the surprise of Pilate. Here are two respected members of the Sanhedrin publicly now making a stand, if you will, for this crucified criminal. And yet Matthew makes it clear that they did this because they had placed their faith in Jesus. You remember back in Luke chapter 23, Luke tells us that Joseph had disagreed with the council's uh, decision to deliver Jesus to Pilate. Again, John tells us that Nicodemus had defended Jesus all the way back in John chapter seven when the council first met to decide what to do with this man from Galilee. And what it appears is that both of these men sort of took up what was probably a, a disingenuous challenge that the council made that people needed to search and look, right? John chapter seven, search and look and find out about this prophet from the Galilee. But what happened is as these men searched the scriptures, they were enlightened by the spirit and they started to really understand things about the suffering of Jesus Christ and also about his glory. We've talked about, you know, from Daniel's prophecies, certainly they would have started to understand when the Messiah would die. From other scriptures, like we've looked at Psalm 22, they would come to realize why he would die and how he would die. And then in his death on the cross, just earlier that afternoon, they saw the fulfillment of all of these things right before their eyes. And so here now they're emboldened in their faith, and they're coming forward for Jesus for the very first time in a very public way. And I think that it's accurate to say that in a very real sense that Joseph and Nicodemus not only buried Jesus that day, but they buried themselves that day as well. They buried themselves socially, they buried themselves economically, they buried themselves religiously, because what they were doing now would have separated them forever from that establishment class that they had been part of that had killed the Lord Jesus. And though they hadn't yet openly testified of their faith, you know, they'd been living maybe as secret disciples, but it was the death of Jesus on the cross that had touched them deeply. And the Spirit of God now is working in them to act and to do whatever the cost. And sometimes, I think you may have heard Nicodemus and and Joseph of Arimathea, sometimes I think they can be cruelly criticized because they were secret disciples. But let me ask this question. Where were the prominent disciples at this point? Right? Where was Peter? Where was James? Where was John? Well, of course, we know they're in secret, right? They're hiding out. But it was these secret disciples. It was Nicodemus and it was Joseph. They were the men who were there at the cross. And they're the men now where they're ministering to the body of the Lord. And I think that should be an encouragement to us. Because maybe you feel like within the body, you don't do that much. You know, you you don't walk on water that often. Maybe you haven't healed a whole lot of lepers lately. You know, maybe you're not very vocal out on the job about the Lord. And yet, I think from their example, we can take heart. Because just like Joseph and just like Nicodemus, you will have your opportunity. And quite honestly, it's sometimes the secret disciples who are the ones that really shine when it really starts to get the darkest. It's those quiet ones, it's the unknown ones. Quite often those are the strongest ones. And I think that's what we see here with Joseph and with Nicodemus. They were grounded in the word in the scriptures, and the things that prophesied about Jesus, and now their moment had finally arrived. So we saw in the beginning of verse 58, they went to Pilate, they asked for the body of Jesus. It says, then Pilate commanded the body to be given to them. Now normally, the bodies of crucified criminals were either left up there on the cross to be eaten by scavenger birds. But of course, because the Passover was upon them, the Jews would have wanted to get those bodies down as soon as they could and dispose of them quickly. No doubt their plan was probably simply to throw the broken body of Jesus into the valley of Hinnom, which was basically the city dump. Right there, adjacent to the city of Jerusalem, there were fires that were constantly burning, there were wild animals that would have come and devoured the bloody flesh, and yet we see the way that God overruled their plans, and he's using Joseph, he's using Nicodemus to ensure that his son receives a proper proper burial, and that prophecy is fulfilled even in that. Look in verse 59, it says that when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. Now I love this beautiful scene here, just Joseph, just Nicodemus, these secret disciples of Jesus, because what I really think it shows us is that I believe that it was God who kept these Prominent men hidden, as it were, until their unique, specific calling, until their moment was at hand. And then he brought them forth. And I believe that there are some of you in this room that God may be doing the very same thing. You know, centuries before, we had seen Isaiah predict of the death of Jesus. In Isaiah 53, it says that they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. And we remember we talked about, when we looked at the crucifixion, that the Romans had killed him between two criminals, but now here it was about to be buried like a king, wrapped in these fine linen cloths, laid in the, this bed of spice, spices in a virgin tomb. And the Lord is using these two previously secret disciples to bring about this prophetic fulfillment. Now, I'm sure you've heard it rightly pointed out that Jesus came into the world from a virgin's womb, and then he came forth again from a virgin tomb. Now, beyond simply being somewhat poetic, this is actually critically important. No body had ever been set in that tomb so that... When a body came forth out of the tomb and the tomb was left empty, there couldn't possibly be any confusion as to which body had come forth. Understand, customarily, these tombs, they would commonly have probably a small entrance and then sometimes a couple few different compartments where bodies were laid out and they were sort of mummified with these spices and ointments and those linen strips. And the Jews would leave those bodies alone for a few years, until they decayed down to the bones. Then they would come back in, collect up the bones, place them in a small stone box, and then that box would be put, it would remain in the tomb with the remains of the other family members. And yet we see here the way the Lord is so careful to arrange for this brand new tomb. In order, in advance to protect the integrity of the coming resurrection of his son. Spurgeon said this, that it was a new tomb wherein no remains had been previously laid, and thus if he came forth from it, there would be no suspicion that another had arisen, nor could it be imagined that he rose through touching some old prophet bones, as he did who was laid in Elisha's grave. I love this because God had prepared this wealthy man, Joseph, who had prepared this new tomb right there, very close to where Jesus would be crucified, which John tells us this tomb was in a garden. Now, if you go to Jerusalem today, you can visit the specific garden, just steps from Golgotha, and you can see the tomb which we believe was where Jesus was And you just imagine for a moment all of the prior preparation of people and of places that was required to produce all this. Understand, an unused tomb hewn and set out of solid stone, that was no small matter. It came at only incredible, considerable cost. And people have wondered, they've speculated whether this tomb maybe was the tomb that was uh, meant for Joseph's family or whether Joseph had this tomb specifically prepared for Jesus after he came to faith in Jesus. Now, whichever of those is true, tombs like this were incredibly expensive, and it would have been a tremendous sacrifice for Joseph of Arimathea to give this up. Now, some record that when asked why he would give his brand new tomb away to Jesus, that Joseph's answer, was that Jesus just needed him for the weekend. <laughs> okay. Had to look like a youth pastor joke. Pastor Tosh told me that one. <laughs> Understand this too. Just in taking down Jesus' body from the cross, that itself was a very bold declaration of their newfound faith for Joseph and Nicodemus because In just touching his dead body, what were they doing? They were now defiling themselves so that they couldn't eat the Passover meal. But what difference did that make now, right? Who needs a Passover lamb when they had actually discovered the true lamb of God? They'd found that true forgiveness that only his sacrifice could actually provide. Look at the rest of verse 16. So they've laid the body of Jesus in this new tomb, it says that he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed, and Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. So Matthew notes that here we have Mary of Magdala. She's the one out of whom seven demons have been cast. By Jesus. We have Mary, the mother of Joseph, and both of them, he says, were looking on, and they were taking note of everything that was done. And no doubt in mourning, here are these faithful women that are accompanying the body of Jesus right up until the last moments that he's buried. When all of the disciples, of course, had already abandoned him. And as we think about them and as we look at that. uh, Matthew so specifically including them, we have to wonder what they were thinking. Were they waiting there expecting that something spectacular was about to happen? That Jesus was going to pop back up as they carried him into the tomb or something. And yet imagine these two women as they watched him put in there. And then they watched this huge stone. It would have been shaped like a huge millstone. It stood up on an edge and it ran in a little channel that was carved out of the stone. And they would have watched this thing rolled across. It would have taken a number of men to do it. And all of a sudden, it was seen. guess you could say they watched the very first Rolling Stones. (laughs) (laughs) Should have the monkey for that one. And yeah, think about these women and as I was, you know, I'm just thinking and I imagine their despair. Thinking as that stone closed, is this really the end of the story? And thinking that all of those things that they'd hoped for from the Lord, that those things weren't going to come. All of that trust they'd put in the Lord, that that was all just for nothing. And yet I think this is so appropriate, that old saying, that it's Friday, but what? What Sunday's coming. And so often with the Lord we too, I think, can get to that point where we start to feel disappointed and we can feel disheartened. We can even get discouraged. But we need to remember it's not so much a question of if he'll come through, but the real question is simply a matter of when he'll come through. And so just like these women, for us, the truth of the coming resurrection, if you will, of our own circumstances, of our our specific situation, it is very likely just a couple days away very likely just around the corner. And I love this whole scene, this whole beautiful picture, all of the detail of the burial of the body of Jesus, because I think it's important because it emphasizes to us and it records for us the reality of Jesus' death. In order for there to be a resurrection from the dead, there has to be a death. And this, all this detail is specifically provided for us, we also see this incredible love of those who were so devoted to him. And I love this too, and I think it's worth making note of. As long as Jesus was taking our place as sinners, and as he was offering himself to the Father for our sins, we saw that his enemies were allowed to heap upon him every kind of shameful indignity and every kind of brutality. And yet, when you read the accounts, from the moment that it says that the blood and water flowed from the pierced side of Jesus, which John tells us is part of what testifies to the fact that our redemption had been accomplished from that moment on, it's as though God says, hands off. Because from that moment, you see that Jesus was not ever touched again by enemy hands. And he was only, God only permitted that one's closest to Jesus to handle his body. Now, I don't think that we can know for sure what they knew. We, we don't know what they expected. We don't know how much they understood. But what we do see is the way that they honored him. Now, while Jesus' friends were busy honoring him, watch the way his enemies, this is great, but they're so restless and they're still trying to stop him. Look at verse 62 because it says that on the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate. Now remember, Jesus was crucified during the day on Friday, the day of And his body would have been taken down before sunset on Friday evening. Because that's when the Passover or the Sabbath would have officially begun. Remember the evening is the beginning to the Jews of the next day. At which point, that's the moment the religious leaders wasted no time. And they go running back to Pilate. Now understand, here are presumably the most holy men of Israel on the most holy day in Israel, radically breaking their own Sabbath law because they are continuing to work feverishly to try to contain an already dead man. It's almost comical. You I mean, think about it, everything had gone their way. They couldn't have asked for a better result at this point. Jesus was dead. They had succeeded in having an innocent man publicly crucified at the hands of Rome. They had eliminated the single greatest threat that Jesus posed to their power and their corrupt lifestyle, and yet that still wasn't enough. And in effect, what I think we'll see is that at this point, they are realizing that the cross and all of their scheming to get Jesus on it, instead of solving all of their problems, the cross had actually only created a much bigger problem for them. So they go running back to Pilate, verse 63, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise. Isn't it ironic that they themselves had just perfectly set the stage for Jesus' greatest triumph? And now his prophetic words about that promise of his coming resurrection, those words are coming back to haunt these guys. We know that Jesus had spoken repeatedly about this to the disciples. We know that he'd spoken to the religious leaders themselves about his resurrection. And what's so ironic here is that the words of Jesus about his coming resurrection seem to have made much more impact on his enemies ...than they did even on his own disciples. He clearly mentioned it repeatedly, although we know they never really seemed to understand what he meant. Mark and Luke both tell us that disciples wondered what this rising from the dead could actually be referring to. John tells us that even after Jesus was crucified, that the disciples still had no expectation of his actual resurrection... And yet here, the enemies of Jesus seem to remember what the disciples forgot, and that's that Jesus had promised to rise from the dead on the third day. So here we have the skeptics believing, and we have the believers skeptical. And what I think is so sad is that often that's so true, is that sometimes the unbeliever can believe more Than we believers do. And the truth is that unbelievers are more, sometimes more, uh, they have a better understanding of just the raw power and the reality of God than sometimes we who have like theologized or rationalized so much of the Bible away with our doctrinal systems and our systematic understanding. Now, don't get me wrong. We need to study and we need to understand the Word. But more importantly, we need to believe. Amen? We need to take God at His Word. Take His Word at face value. Because had the disciples really believed that Jesus would rise, where would they have been? They'd have been setting up camp around the tomb to watch it to be there when it happened. And I think it's so important for us as believers. Remember, the Lord wants to work. The Lord wants to move. The Lord is working. The Lord is moving in us and all around us. But we need to be watching. We need to be believing so that we don't miss out on it when he actually does. His enemies believed. They believed what Jesus said and it pushed them right to action, They went to Pilate. Verse 64, they ask him, Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, so the last deception will be worse than the first. Now think about this. Matthew already told us, back in verse 16, that all of the normal preparations and all of the precautions had already been made to make the tomb secure. Right, we have this huge stone that's been rolled across, it would take multiple guys to do it, and yet that clearly wasn't enough. They were still afraid. And notice they claim to Pilate that they were afraid because of the disciples. But I actually don't think that that at all is what they were afraid of, because it doesn't make any sense. They couldn't have actually been afraid of the disciples. They knew, surely, that the disciples were scared and in hiding. They knew that none of the disciples were even present at the crucifixion. No doubt they had sources and informants that were informing them, letting them know that the disciples were all terrified for their lives. Nor do I think they possibly could have been afraid of some sort of deception staged by the disciples where they would steal the body of Jesus and claim that Jesus rose from the dead because they knew that the disciples would never be able to produce a dead body and somehow pretend that it was alive. It would be like Weekend at Bernie's, right? And yet less (laughs) believable, right? It would prove nothing. So when we think about that, in all of this, Make no mistake, but what the religious leaders were really afraid of here was the real resurrection power of Jesus. And they were right to be concerned, because all throughout Israel at this time, there was evidence of the power of Jesus. The lame were walking, the blind were seeing, the deaf were hearing. There were multitudes that had been healed. There were lepers who had been made whole. There were people even who had been raised from the dead. In fact, resurrection, we might say, was one of Jesus' specialties. And they knew it. They knew he had raised the son of the widow of Nain. They knew he had raised the daughter of the synagogue ruler Jairus. They knew most recently, most notably, he had raised Lazarus. Just steps locally from where they were there in Jerusalem. There were all of these miracles. And understand, this is going to sound redundant, but understand just how miraculous these miracles really were. Because they came at the end of what was a 400-year silence. From the closing of the book of Malachi, right, the closing of the Old Testament writings, until the coming of Messiah, it had been 400 years since any prophet of God had spoken to Israel, or since the power of God had been manifest in Israel. It was this wonderful sort of pregnant pause that God gives us in human history and then Jesus. And when Jesus came, it's not like there were a lot of guys running around cleansing lepers and casting out demons and performing these miraculous things. But Jesus came along on the scene and he was like a one-man super demonstration of the power of God. And that's why Nicodemus came to him. He came to him in John chapter 3 and he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. That's why Joseph studied him. That's why the religious leaders were now afraid of him. They were afraid that he was going to do precisely what he said he was going to do and that he had the power to do it. And what's significant too and what they say in both six, verse 63 and verse 64, the enemies of Jesus declare that he is dead. Now that may not sound important, and yet it is. Because by their own testimony declaring Jesus dead, it provides us with absolute proof, not from the mouths of the disciples, but right from the mouths of his enemies The absolute proof that would combat against one of the greatest coming deceptions, which would try to explain away the truth of the resurrection. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called the swoon theory, or the swoon hypothesis. It's relatively recent. It's only a couple hundred years old. It's this conjecture that denies the resurrection, saying that Jesus never really died on the cross, but he just swooned, or he passed out, or he fainted. And then somehow, once they had laid him peacefully in the cool of the tomb, right, without any medical attention to his wounds or to this hole in his heart where the Roman spear had been thrust in his side, that somehow, without any of that, that he wonderfully but naturally revived himself, rolled away the stone, and walked out of the tomb by himself That's what that theory proposes Now in case it still sounds like It could be possible to you Let me put it in a different way This was a humorous letter That was written to the editor Of a Christian magazine And it kind of acu- accurately I think evaluates this theory It says dear editor Our preacher said on Easter That Jesus just swooned on the cross And the disciples nursed him back to health What do you think? Sincerely bewildered Dear Bewildered, Beat your preacher with a cat of nine tails with 39 heavy strokes. Nail him to a cross. Hang him in the sun for six hours. Run a spear through his heart. Embalm him. Put him in an airless tomb for 36 hours. And let's see what happens. (laughs) Sincerely, Editor. Now we chuckle. But it's tragic what people will believe in an effort to deny the power of God and to deny the reality of the resurrection. And I truly believe that these men, these avowed enemies of Jesus, these religious leaders, that they were terrified of the power of Jesus to fulfill his word. And so where did they go? They run back to Pilate, who was the most powerful man that they knew. With the most human resources available. And they're looking for his help to prevent the resurrection. Verse 65. It says that Pilate said to them. You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. Now there is so much in this seemingly simple statement here from Pilate. Now we know that the religious leaders had their own sort of temple police force, and they wouldn't need Pilate's permission to post those guys outside the tomb. So what they're looking for and what Pilate offers to them